Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. So you've got more of Jeremiah to read this week, this past week, as well as James. And so um, just settle in for Jeremiah because we got a few more weeks of it. But uh, we start off in Jeremiah 12, where Jeremiah, once again, voices his frustration. He is um, frustrated. He wants... God to deal with just the wicked people and just kind of let him be. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I think it's great that we really get a glimpse into Jeremiah's personal struggles with his prophetic call and serving God, despite the fact that it's really hard. You know, Jeremiah has been faithfully following God, but continues to struggle. And he sees how the wicked prosper and is like, God, why is this happening? And so I think we can see that it is okay for us to struggle maybe with a specific call or struggle when we see things that don't seem to align with what we want to see, but to humbly come to God in all of it is what the invitation is. And But God essentially answers them with kind of just you wait. You think Mm -hmm. you're seeing wickedness now. It's going to be worse. Your family's going to turn against you, Jeremiah. Um, I'm bringing this wrath and all the enemies of Israel that that have gone, led you astray, the shepherds, all of them, that the wrath is coming. But... There's an end to it. And and God kind of points that out. It's like, look, it's almost like an upheaval of like a board game. That God's eventually going to return the pieces to where they go, particularly Judah. It kind of points out like Judah's going to have, I'm going to pluck Judah and, and put him back where Judah belongs. But um, this this still a call back to obedience for them, yeah. uh, particularly to leave idolatry. It's cool how God is kind of speaking to Jeremiah, what Jeremiah has to speak to Israel. Like, I get it. You don't see it. You can't quite understand it. Hang in there. It's going to turn out. Okay, in the end. And that's in some regard what Jeremiah ends up speaking to Israel. And then Jeremiah uh, speaks of uh, kind of new garment versus an old garment and then about a filled wineskin or wine container. And so uh, if you remember Matthew 9, Jesus uh, uses these same images to teach on fasting. But uh, it's very much an object lesson, which Jeremiah has a few of, as we will continue to see in his book. Um, There's this new cloth, this this Israel, it's close to the body of God. It was something that God cared about and protected. Uh, But that cloth has sort of objectively been removed and is nowhere close to the body and becomes old and spoiled. And and God's saying like, look, Israel, you used to be close to me. You used to fall under my protection. You were close to my body, but not anymore. And you're, you're spoiled. You're, you're, you're something to be discarded because of brokenness and sin. And so, yeah. I love this metaphor or this analogy with the fact that we were designed to cling to God kind of as a loincloth on a body, as as graphic as, as it is. and But when we rejected God and went elsewhere, we could not, like, we, we were spoiled. Um, so for us individually, I think it's a reminder that we were designed and created by God for a purpose, and that is to be dependent on Him and to cling to Him. And when we step outside of that, we will struggle, we will break, but we can find healing in Him through Christ. And then uh, with this idea of the the, the wine containers, uh, the, the language was every container shall be filled with wine, which uh, likely in Hebrew is this idiom to sort of say everything will fulfill its purpose. Everything will, will reach its culmination. And, and God tells Jeremiah, go tell the people that, that every container shall be filled with wine. Like, go tell them everything will fulfill its purpose. To which the people, they say, like the people say, of course everything will fulfill its purpose. And and I think in their sense, it's sort of like, yes, of course, like we are God's people. This will totally work out for us. Like God is, God will protect us. We're, we're fine. And God's like, okay, he, and this is what's going to happen. I'm going to fill every container. 
and 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 instead of like the 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 chosen nobil noble way of God's people, like I'm gonna I'm gonna fill them so that they have the stupidity of drunkenness in them. Mm. And 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 you know what the verdict is? They're not gonna be this useful filled bottle. I'm gonna smash the bottles. And so um, God sort of using this sort of like catch for them, like tell them they're going to fulfill my purpose and they're going to be like, Oh yeah, we're going to fulfill your purpose. And here's your purpose. I'm going to bring judgment to them. And like, mm. um, and so yeah, God has this, this sort of purpose and desire of what he's going to fulfill through them. And um, yeah. And that they're, uh, that, that judgment's still coming. Right. And then uh, the sort of threat of exile, the sort of weeping. This is one of the first encounters we really get of the weepingness of Jeremiah. Um, and Jeremiah desires their repentance. He, he wants them uh, not to end up in exile, but he also seems to acknowledge like this is their sins and God seems to do it too. It's almost a, uh, using the language of the leopard can't change his spots. The people aren't going to change. And everything Israel has done is going to come to light and they will be ashamed for their behavior. Yeah, there's there's pretty graphic pictures of shame, like God will lift up the skirt of Israel for all to see this this very um, sort of grotesque or kind of, um, uh, yeah, just just very graphic version of this picture. And then uh, famine is coming. Jeremiah acknowledges the sin, but, but still pleads for God to help. He's constantly sort of walking those lines, lines of God. I know you can be merciful right now, but I also know how serious the sin is. So, and he's just wrestling through it. And at some point God kind of is like, I, I need you to stop asking for this. And, and in some ways I, I think what God is making clear, he's like, look, I've spoken to these people over and over. I've very clearly laid out what's going to happen and, and been patient and patient and patient. And, and we're at the breaking point now, Jeremiah. Like time is up and this is happening. There's, there's no more moments for this. And so, um, I think that the, the context is very clear for Jeremiah that God's saying, like, look, this is what is going to happen. No, it's very different than maybe the Moses and Aaron kind of moments where God's first statement is, Oh, this is what I'm going to do. And there's no precursor to that. And then Moses and, 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 um, uh, and Abraham sort of have these debates with God about relenting, but this is very different. This is God's patience has been finally reached its breaking point. Um, and Jeremiah's role isn't the intercessor. And so, um, yeah. I think as we walk with God and as we commune with him through reading scripture and through prayer, he will lead us in how to pray. Even just think of James. It talks about how the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Uh, the Lord will lead us in how to pray. And that is where we see prayers answered when we are praying according to his will. So God is being clear with Jeremiah here of what his will is. And, and I think like even thinking of a very practical relational context, like I think a, a number of us probably have friends or family members who are just so caught up in like, various forms of of modern day idolatries that are just in some ways leading down their own path of destruction and when all those things start falling apart it, and you're sort of like look like this is this is the lesson that they're learning right now y your prayer in that moment may not be like god stop this from happening it may be like god help them to learn their their lesson that that all these things are are false idols and and things that ultimately uh in this brokenness that they might find you in it. And so um, I, I think there's a little bit of that to Jeremiah being like, stop, stop asking for me to not do this. Like this is for you all's good. Like this yeah. is my judgment so that I can actually have this purified remnant. And so stop, stop asking me to not do it. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. 
And then we end up with these other prophets who are saying peace and everything's going to work out. And, and God's sort of like, these aren't my prophets and they're all going to die mm-hmm. at the end of this. And um, Jeremiah is supposed to still weep for his people and, and yeah, and then there's a pleading, and it's a little bit hard to read whether this is the the people or Jeremiah. Jeremiah had just been instructed not to pray, but at the same time, it feels like this very legitimate prayer. And so, I'm just not sure if it's the people who are crying out, which God just said they would do, or Jeremiah himself. And so, um, yeah, I'm not going to put too strong of a flag one way or the other. I do love that line in that prayer that we set our hope on you, for you do all these things. They're good. That's a good way for us to pray as well. Yeah. But God reminds them there's no amount of intercession that's going to work here. Death, right. it's coming, disease, sword, starvation. Um, and the only alternative to death itself is exile. And so, um, but there's going to be birds and dogs eating the corpses, which is a very shameful way to die. It's not an honorable way to be uh, buried or anything like that. And so, um, and, there's and, lots of Bible references in here, too. If you heard things like, let them go, you think of Pharaoh, or widows more than the number of the sands in the sea, sounds like Abraham. And so it's meant to kind of throw back to some of the previous right, or writings. Or the, the mother who had seven children, which is a, yeah. a part of Hannah's prayer and stuff like that. And so there's, yeah, there's all these uh, sort of Old Testament, uh, further Old Testament references. And uh, But Jeremiah keeps complaining. He kind of wishes he was never born at this point. And um, you got to understand that a little bit. He's, he's bringing a, a really harsh message to the people um and and they want nothing nothing to do with him um and so um th- there's definitely some accusations i feel like jeremiah mm-hmm. is thrown around a little bit but at the same time he's he's still moving forward by faith like he's like god i i don't know if like this is the right thing and i don't understand why you're doing it this way but i'm still going to be obedient and i'm still going to do what you've called me to do um even in, even in the face of ridicule and hatred Something for us as believers to that I find myself reconciling or having to wrestle with reconciling is the fact that Jeremiah is being faithful and obedient to God's call and his life does not get easier. You know, in this complaint, Jeremiah quotes David and wonders why he's not experiencing the joy of obedience, but just as it continues to experience unceasing pain. And God kind of rebukes him here and reminds him to trust in God and not in man. God reiterates the promise he gave to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1. And Jeremiah has got to understand that as he continues to be faithful, he's going to continue to suffer. So set back yourself and, and ask, like, am I willing to suffer in faithful obedience that others may or may not turn or may or may not repent? Is faithful obedience to God enough for me, even if I don't experience maybe the fruit or the joy of it that others have? Yeah. And, and, and we're in a culture that's so suffering adverse that, um, some of these lessons are really lost on us or there's a reason why you don't hear a lot of people teach from second Corinthians because it's a whole book about suffering. And even next week when we start getting into first Peter, Peter's instructions to these churches are kind of plain in the face of suffering. It's sort mm-hmm. of like, okay, well go be good citizens and don't retaliate. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's distinct of sort of like, what, what is the role of suffering? How do I have a right theology of suffering and, and why does the Bible put so much emphasis on it? And so, um, yeah, sometimes we, we lose out on that in sort of the culture of comfort we often live in. But it's okay too, to struggle with it. Just like we see Jeremiah struggling yeah, with course. it. He doesn't, he doesn't feel great about it, but he's continuing to be obedient. And that is, probably where a lot of us find ourselves for a lot of our faith journeys. Yep. And this is going to happen, this sort of uh, suffering and, and the exile. And, and Jeremiah has even sort of given a, a harsher message where it's like, and, and I don't want you to marry. I don't want you to have these celebrations. I don't even want you going to mourning with your people. Um, God's essentially like, I, I just need you to watch what's going to happen. Um, and yeah. 
And why? Mm-hmm. Because of the sins of your ancestors, the sins that you've continued to walk in. Yeah. But there's, there's always hope. like these little moments of, but there's hope. Yeah. God's going to bring them out uh, like in Egypt and, and they're going to bring them out of Babylon and the adult, like Israel struggling with idolatry, but guess what? The invading people are idolaters too. And God's like, I'm going to punish that accordingly as well. Um, and, and he's, he's kind of driving home that there's a lesson to be taught one day. Like, and one day all the nations will come to worship, but mm-hmm. there's still more of the story I need to tell about who I am and who my people are. Yeah, and that should point you to thinking of Christ. You know, we think of this idea of sin being judged and God's people being restored and the nations finding blessing in God. This is what we get to walk in as people who are living on this side of the resurrection. Yeah, and then once again, God throws this accusation. It's like, here's the problem. You have idolatry right now in your hearts. The very place where God's law should be. I mean, we find out in Deuteronomy 22 or Proverbs 3, like the law was meant to be written on their hearts and God's not happy that they've written idolatry. They've written other gods onto their hearts. And um, and then he points out, he uses the kind of this picture that's really out of Psalm 1, this picture of like this drought coming, uh, but the righteous, the righteous are going to be like these trees. Like, yes, the storm of judgment's happening, but the righteous are going to be like trees on, on the planted by the river so that when the judgment comes like the, uh, like a drought on the land that that these righteous who who find their water not from the rainfall but from the river itself which would be jesus and, and god that that they would still f- flourish and bear fruit i'm continually reminded in reading this that god wants our best as a people those who trust in god will be fruitful and enduring and experience peace in the midst of whatever kind of circumstances but those who trust in man and wealth are just going to live in constant fear and fruitlessness god's longing is for us to be satisfied and that can only truly come from him yeah and in all seasons i mean go back to psalm one that the the desire there is for for god's people to bear fruit in season and out of season which is even more crazy it's like how do you bear fruit when it's not even the season to bear fruit but um god god desires his people to be planted so that there is this constant um bearing fruit which we even find out in the new testament like it's 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 sometimes the really good things of joy and peace and stuff like that so yeah but jeremiah once again he keeps coming back around and being like can i can i can i be delivered from this like i have these accusers i don't want them like god can you please help yeah crying out to god and then uh, we get this conversation about Sabbath, which may feel like it kind of stands out quite a bit, but it's, I found it, I appreciated that we actually finished the book of Chronicles right before we read Jeremiah because the Chronicler, which is written years after this, this is sort of uh, Israel's retrospective on this period in some ways. And they're thinking back to this period. And the end of Chronicles points out like our exile, one of the main chief purposes of the exile is so that, um, the the land the the place that God had prepared to us can can have this Sabbath rest that there was some uh, central piece of Sabbath and Sabbath covers so many things I mean it, it's yes it's the it's the once a week sort of stopping remembering God's goodness trusting in God and God alone um, finding joy in God celebrating what God has created celebrating where God has a, a trajectory for the humanity all those sort of things are part of Sabbath rest that, that sort of time with God but but also the Sabbath years. And in the in the year of Jubilee, this ideas of of even justice and stuff like that that were playing out of of um, re- restoring the slave, giving rest to livestock and fields, all this kind of redistribution of land, and, and so the very practices of rest and worship and Jubilee have just been forgotten about. And Jeremiah is getting back to that, going like, "Look, this is why Sabbath is so central because of the major themes that are part of Sabbath, which would ultimately help them in their idolatry and help them in their injustice practices and." and 
help them to re- to remember that that God is is the God of 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 um, rest. That His people are the identity of of rest, not by work or not by doing, and 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 all that kind of stuff, which is so tied into this idea, and it becomes a, a bit of a central piece here. I think he's pointing out that because rest was given by God to show that we don't have to work for salvation, but we are free people, that when we neglect Sabbath or when we neglect rest in this way, in some way it's neglecting receiving the rest from work of earning salvation, and it's ultimately minimizing the saving work of God through Christ for us in modern day, but in Israel just minimizing the work that God did in delivering Israel. Yeah, and you had, I mean, I can't remember if it was Amos or Micah, but you had even had the 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 tradesmen, the, the people who were trying to make a buck who were um, trying to 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 they they couldn't wait till Sabbath was over so that they can go back to to sort of um, taking advantage of people and so you you had these sort of practices of like just wanting to get rid of Sabbath so that mm-hmm. they could keep the machine going and and God's like you you've lost the the main part of the story you've lost what I've called you to be I need you to go back and remember the in these practices who you are as my people. Okay. And then we get language of the potter and the clay. And um, I can't help but think of a little bit of Paul's metaphor in Romans 9. But um, it's interesting because we get the potter clay story. And then right after that, this sort of pottery smashing story. Uh, and I think they're meant to be compared and contrast in some ways. And uh, the the first story is this I, this concept of moldable clay and that – that if you're a, if you're a piece of clay, then then ultimately when you're on the the potter's wheel, you are responding, you are being shapen and molded by the hands of the potter. It's it's something that um, that the potter can work with, and um, even when it's misshapen, that the the potter can always return back uh, and start again. But then there's this idea of the hardened pot, and there's no shaping, there's no molding it anymore. It is what it is, and it's hard, and it, at times it's brittle at the same time, and so. Um, um, there's no more reworking it on the potter's wheel it is done. And I think um, these two things being juxtaposed and then uh, Jeremiah having this sort of prophetic theater, uh, I think he's taking this pot being like, look, you are no longer on the potter's wheel. You are no longer being able to be shapen by the potter. And so I'm going to smash you to pieces. And so um, I think that's the message, which is pretty harsh. <laughs> Yeah. But, but right. It's the right message, I think. Yeah, it's reminding them of the right ordering and, and again, the divine design of a people to worship God. Yeah. And in that broken flash section, there's things like they, they will eat the flesh of their own sons and daughters, which Deuteronomy 28 said, this is going to happen. This is going to be part of their exile. Um, and and we also get the valley of judgment, which I said, this, this becomes the valley that really gets associated with the, the idea of hell. Yeah. But we also find out there's a priest who is not so keen on Jeremiah, mm-hmm. um, decides to lock him up, but uh, that doesn't work very well. Jeremiah just can't stop preaching the message, even when he doesn't seem to even want to. He's like, my, but my bones, there's still fire in my bones. I have to say these things. Um, and yeah. I think it's such a fascinating tension that Jeremiah walks of kind of grief and sorrow at the difficulty and the weight of his call, but this burning fire in his bones that he cannot help but speak of. And again, it should cause us to reflect on ourselves and how we process struggle and what faithful obedience looks like in our own lives. May we and may I walk with God in such a way that I cannot help but speak of who God is and what he's done, no matter what the cost. Um, and Zedekiah who's sort of the ruler at the time kind of reaches out. He just doesn't know how to deal with Babylon. He sends Jeremiah and, and God through Jeremiah is basically like, look, I'm fighting on the sides of Babylon here. I'm not fighting on your side. So, um, and, and God's message to them is look, don't hide. Don't, don't fight back. 
ultimately like this is this is my will is for you to end up in in exile so so go there and and this is going to sort sort itself out but but don't don't fight back um, which is an interesting message for Jeremiah to have to bring as well yeah, starting here in chapter 21, we see a little bit of a transition in the writing. We see Jeremiah, in what we read this week, a lot of him kind of questioning and reconciling his call with God. And then we we see almost him growing in a security in his relationship with God, which we'll talk more about next week. And then he starts to really lean into his enemies and their beliefs confronting them on that. And once again, God calls him back to justice. He's like a minister of justice, rescue mm-hmm. the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. And he's still calling them to, to, to live the right life. But in some ways, he's also still telling them, but I still have these things against you and this isn't going to go well. Yeah. So James, uh, we pick up on the sin of partiality. And I wonder, uh, sometimes headers, uh, in case you in case we haven't talked about it very much before, like those those headers above like sections in scripture are not in the original text. Neither are the numbers or the chapter numbers, uh, all that kind of stuff. And so James just came off the statement saying like, this is true religion. You care for the orphan, you care for the widows. And then immediately goes into, so brothers also don't show partiality. And, and you could argue James is unpacking all the pieces of what true religion looks like, but it just feels like it keeps going that idea and, and includes not showing partiality. And, and certainly we watched in Jesus's time, the Jewish people really struggled with this of partiality partiality in practice, that they would show honor to certain people. They would really dismiss those that they would find unclean. They would be dishonorable. They would be on the marginal margins and stay there. And I think Jesus or James has to remind a particularly Jewish crowd, like this is not the way of Jesus. Like Christ became dishonored so that we would have a place of honor. And, and, and he brought us into honor. And now we act like Christ to others. We instill honor in others and, and show no partiality. We, we don't just look at some people as dishonorable and not noble. We, we, we bring them uh, in, in and we treat everyone with honor. That's, that's the way we're designed to be. And so love your neighbor and, and, and which is commandments four through 10. And I love that he even unpacks some of that saying like, you don't get to choose which part of those commandments you obey. It's not like you could be like, oh, I don't murder, but I don't but I committed adultery and that's okay. No, you live under this new rule and the rule is freedom and not judgment. And so love your neighbor and show mercy because that's better than judgment every time. You don't want to live under the rule of judgment. You want to live under the rule of freedom um, because if you live under the rule of judgment, you judge others and the judgment's going to have to come back to you. But live under the rule of freedom, show mercy, and it's so much better. And it all comes back to this picture of Christ in the same way that we have received mercy from Christ Jesus. We are to offer that same mercy to others, not judging as the world does through showing favorites and partiality, but showing equal favor and equal preference to rich and poor, educated and uneducated, um, depending on, you know, all of those different areas. We are to offer the same mercy that to others that Christ showed to us. And then we get this conversation around faith and works and whether you're justified by the works. And I mean, we've already read Paul kind of talk about this. And so it becomes a little bit complicated to unpack. All right. James and Paul saying opposite things. And um, it's important to remember Paul's context where he talks about that we're not justified by the works of the law, but by faith. And he uses Abraham as an example, just like James does. But Paul's point is that justification by faith came before circumcision. That was like the goal there, to, to kind of talking to the, all these Gentiles and these Jews about the, the Gentiles coming into the group. And he's like, look, they don't, the Mosaic law does not apply to faith in Jesus. That, that, that the, the faith that Abraham had before circumcision ever came, that it's like that. And so we, we trust in God. We don't have to follow the Mosaic covenant and the Mosaic rules. James here is having a much different conversation. He doesn't even include conversations about circumcision. 
he, he's pointing out that Abraham was justified by faith and, and it caused him to go then live it out, that, that there was action that followed up in it, that, that his faith was, had a fruitful, a sort of trusting obedience that went along with it. And, and so, yes, we're, we're not justified by our works on either way in some ways, but at the same time, we're not justified by a workless faith. And so, um, and, and so the, 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 the fruit doesn't cause us to be saved, but we're not saved by a fruitless faith. And so, um, James is kind of pushing that to, to go, look, we remember like this faith, and, and the deeds here are not the, the works of the law. This, this is a bit of a different phrase. The deeds here are, are sort of living out just what God has desired for his people. Um, and, and it doesn't save you, but your saving faith includes these things. And so go live it out. And it's for everyone, just like Abraham, trusted in God, but he still had to go up the mountain with Isaac and things like that. So a main theme in the book of James that we've been hitting on is this idea of what genuine faith looks like. And in this area specifically, or in this section specifically, James is pointing out that genuine faith is expressed through action. Faith without action to prove that it's there is dead. And so our actions are evidence of what we truly believe about God. Many of us, if not everyone listening to this podcast says they believe in Jesus, but where do you live it out? When God leads you to do something difficult, do you respond in doing? Or do you respond in going to church more or praying more? What action do you take in suffering? You cannot claim or we cannot claim to be Christians, but not actually take any action to live that out. Our salvation comes by Christ and Christ alone, but it is an act of faith made complete by the works we do that backs up what we say we truly believe. Yeah. I even find it fascinating. James sort of wraps up with this Rahab as an example example as if as if any gentiles are getting a hold of this letter being like oh and gentiles you guys are included in this too mm-hmm. and so yeah and then we get instructions around the tongue um and and sort of the the initial like hey don't be in a rush to teach like teaching is some highly responsible work and teachers are held to a strict standard. And so, and, and guess what? Teachers, not all of them get it right. Actually, no one gets it right. There's no perfect teacher. Jesus was the only perfect teacher. And so, but now he follows up sort of the, but words, words can be powerful. And they can be small things like a, like a bit in a horse's mouth or a rudder on a boat or a spark, like not significant things compared to the, the larger items. But these small things can have a huge effect like on a horse or a boat or a forest fire. And so words, just the smallest words can bring about so much power and destruction. And then sadly, the tongue is untamable. So there's going to be some of this. There's going to be this brokenness. But the same place that the blessings of God come out of is the same place where destructive things come out of. But James's ultimate drive for them is so like, have a redeemed mouth. Seek to bring it under some control. Speak the things of God. Try to tame it as best you can, even though it's not fully tameable. So here we see that genuine faith is displayed, or at least are maturing in it, through our speech, showing regard and honor and love for God and for others. We hold so much power with our words, both spoken and typed or written. And one of the things that should set us apart as Christians is that our words are reserved for only speaking things that are pleasing to God. This includes things like blessing God, of course, but also every single thing we say about his image bearers. This also includes things like complaining and grumbling or patience with speech. So what do your words, again, whether tweeted or spoken, um, what do they communicate about your faith? Yeah. So who is wise in this world? Those who live it out. And I think it's interesting right after the talk of tongues, it's like, you don't want to know who is wise. 
It's, it's the ones who, who live a certain way and not just talk the talk, but actually live out. And, and they're not about selfish ambition, tearing others down, manipulating any of those things. That lacks wisdom. But the life of wisdom, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to read, it's impartial, it's sincere. There's some simplicity to all that. And not only that, like he closes with this, this harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, which is such a countercultural word. I, I just don't know as Christians right now that, that some of our identification is as peaceable and gentle, impartial, sincere um, peacemakers. And so yeah, it's it's hard in a world that is very not peaceful and everything's partial. Um, there's a lot of not gentleness to the world right now. And so um, what do it look like to, to live out what James is actually calling his people to here? So when we think about wisdom from above or wisdom from God versus earthly wisdom, the main difference is that wisdom from God is focused on others and wisdom from the earth or the fleshly wisdom is focused on self. So when you make decisions that you call wise, what is the fruit of them? Are others blessed and loved through them? Or are you the one who is blessed and your life is made easier through the decision? I think that will be the answer as to if the wisdom you are walking by is from above or from the flesh. Yeah. And speaking of making peace, you you know why there's not peace? You know why there's so much discord? Why so many people love to fight? Well, it's because everybody kind of wants something they don't have. And and God desires people to ask him for those things. And God will sort out the hard part because if they're asking for super selfish ambition, God's going to clearly say no to that. Like that's God has no interest in feeding your selfish ambition. But if they ask with a humble heart, that's really what God's after. And the answer may still be no, or it could possibly yes. I don't think this is a free for all that if you just ask with a humble heart that God's automatically going to give you everything that you ask for, um, especially the, with the material things of this world. But but it's a doing, it starts to change your heart. We start breaking down the envying, the coveting, the desiring of, of things and sort of trusting his design for things. And, and that starts shaping us. That's why there's so much, there's multiple verses sometimes people use of like, God will just give you the desires of your heart if you just ask and those kind of phrases. But often those, those sections are included with like, um, like dwell in his word and let it dwell richly in you and then you can pray. And it, and it, and it speaks to sort of the transforming of desire and then pray and God will respond and as opposed to uh, just ask for whatever you want. And so um, God's correcting that here. And this fellowship of the world that he gets into in that context is those who desire to spend everything on their own passions. Um, and God's saying, I don't want that. I'm a jealous lover. I want you. Uh, I want your love. I want your affections. I don't want you to live out of your passions. I want those things for you. So flee sin, desire obedience, which is what James is really after. Watch what you say about other believers. And it's quite possible these Jewish believers have had quarrels with their Gentile brethren. And 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 it seems like, at least in James's instructions, they're trying to apply some new laws or standards that are just not in line with the gospel, which is a no-no. And we'll pick up on that a little bit more, I think, next week. James clearly here is inviting us to be thoughtful and intentional about the way we live in all areas. And so in this section, he wants his audience, which is us or the initial readers, to be able to distinguish between the behaviors of the world and the behaviors of Christians. And he gives these different examples of how to live as one who is submitted to God. And you and I live in this tremendous tension of desiring things of the world, but also being renewed and transformed by Christ. So what we do with those desires will indicate how we live. What are you pursuing? Doing? Is it others focused or is it self-seeing? Do you find yourself dwelling on worldly things, what you want to consume or what you want to do? Or do you find yourself thinking about what it looks like to please God? Do we minimize sin or do we focus on holiness? And so the wisdom that shows its wisdom and humility come from being submitted to God and that will be displayed through how we care for others.
All right. Proverbs 24. So there's a couple of verses in here I just want to read through. And and I want you to think about this, especially as we think about the unborn and our call and command to fight for the life of the unborn. Of course, we talk all the time about we we care for life from womb to tomb. But I want to specifically um, think about the unborn here. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? So once you know, we are called and commanded to take action and be advocates for those who cannot advocate for themselves. Yeah. And there's a, there's a few really good tidbits here. Like do not gloat when your enemies fall, when they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. And I mean, that, that is a temptation for so many of us when uh, those who oppose us or those who are from a very different camp than us or something like that have their stumble. There's sort of sometimes this rejoicing, this sort of like, ha, they, they got what was coming to them. And Proverbs is like, don't, don't live that way. So there's teaching, there's teaching on interpersonal relationships in here. There's some teaching about wise preparation. So when bad things happen, you're ready. And so, uh, which is interesting because James is going to um, teach a little bit of a, of a different perspective on that in a moment. But yeah, uh, it's so good. And it's Psalms 26, Psalm 26. So I think this is a great Psalm to read slowly, to, to dwell on. Read through it, imagine David praying it, and then read through it, imagine Christ praying it. And then what would it look like for you to pray through it after you've considered what it looked like for both David and Christ to pray it? Yeah, it almost feels like a prayer of Jeremiah of what he prayed in his time, where it's like, don't send the same punishment to me like you send to the rest of the sinners. Like, I've tried to walk righteously. I've tried to be upright, God. Um, can you can you spare me from whatever's coming? Uh, the only difference is there's definitely a love of the temple that I don't think Jeremiah would have had in his day. And so, um, But there's a connection. Some people connect this, this, this text actually to a priest that probably likely wrote it, um, just because there's some very specific language around the priesthood. And so, yeah. And then Psalm 6. So David cries out to God because of the wickedness around him and even within him. And it just helps me to see or be reminded again that when we know God, we will be grieved at sin and evil. Yeah. And there's a lot of suffering for the the psalmist in this and, and a lot of um, of pleading in the midst of suffering. Mm-hmm. And uh, historically, it's been connected to those who are sick and stuff like that. But I think that's a bit of a reach uh, given the text. But the author seems to connect some sort of like suffering with his foes. And and we don't know who the guilty party is per se, but there's a struggle. And he's just asking God for some help. So next week, what should we look out for? So in Jeremiah, God is going to talk about how David's descendants are going to cease to rule in Judah, which causes us to ask, well, what about this promise that God made to David? So read on and see if you can find the answer to that question as we read Jeremiah this coming week. And then in the New Testament, like we talked about today with genuine faith, follow this genuine faith theme in James. See if you can summarize what genuine faith looks like in each of the following sections that you read. Yeah. And so um, we're certainly going to get some of the most hopeful verses out of Jeremiah here, but uh, we're going to hear Jeremiah's instructions to the people. And and it might be part of the reason why he was so despised. Like he's not just calling out their sin, but they're this proud nation. They just drove back the Assyrians here in Judah. Like they won the last battle against a major uh, force that's coming in. And now this other groups in town coming to town and Jeremiah's message to them is like, 
don't fight back against this group that's coming. It's not going to, it's not going to work out. And so, um, see how he starts crafting, like, here's how I want you to start interacting with the Babylonians, uh, because he's going to start painting that for the people. And then new Testament. Yeah. Peter will use language for his church and the churches that he's writing to, uh, that's very much from the old Testament. And, uh, think about how they would hear some of these identifications, this language of a temple or a priesthood. Like, what do you think that would have meant for them to, to kind of hear this now applied to this Gentiles, to the, to the other Jewish people that are trusting in Jesus. And so, yeah, that's it for this week. Thanks. Thank you. 